So we've been here together for about a day, engaging in this process, this practice of meditation. And I'd just like to offer some reflections on what we're engaged in, how one might usefully consider what's happening here. In one sense, it seems we're kind of just sitting around, going for a little bit of a walk, standing about, sitting down again. And, you know, the the kind of the outer appearance of what's happening here might suggest it's a reasonably mundane and possibly sort of undemanding endeavour or happening that's taking place. If we were to sort of invite any of our friends to comment on the description of, oh, so we sat around for a little while and then we walked back and forth, didn't go anywhere, then we got told to stand around and do nothing and then sit down a bit, they'd kind of think, well, that sounds pretty cushy, if they hadn't tried to do it themselves, of course. Because we're not just engaging in these outer forms, and, and you know as well as I do, really, just on the basis of today, if you've never done it before, that these simple things have their particular challenges within them. It's not an easy or a uh, undemanding invitation that we've taken up by bringing ourselves here. But we're not just concerned with the mechanics of the techniques and the forms of the meditation and what particular things we might be given as the, in a way, the task, as we could say, pay attention, be present, be conscious of what's happening and connect so far as you can with your body, with your breathing, with the sense of standing, of walking, of being here. We are equally, as we're engaged in all that, we are being called, we are being invited to engage with really the fundamental question of of our lives and to explore what it means to be a human being, what it means to be alive, to be what we are, however we know or understand or conceive or imagine that, to actually engage with it directly. And one of the things that happens when we come on a retreat is we encounter that element of our the way our lives tend to play out, whereby you know, when we're seeking to turn towards or to, if we become interested in what it means to be a human being, the first thing we notice is the strength of our tendency to be kind of somewhat more of a human doing. And how much doing, how much busyness, how much activity is what we're used to being engaged in. And uh, it's quite challenging to have so little to do. And even more challenging when we have very little to do and we don't seem to be able to succeed that well at doing it. Insofar as we can't necessarily make the process or the practice happen the way we want it to do, want it to happen. And sometimes it seems like, why on earth am I doing this? Why am I walking back and forth? It seems, and people will report thinking and being quite convinced at times, it's pointless. Why am I doing this? And yet, curiously, interestingly, Maybe when people say that they're hoping to be told what the point of it is, it's not pointless, but actually the fact that in a certain way it is pointless is why it's powerful. Because walking back and forth, paying attention to your feet, touching the ground, becoming distracted, remembering at some point and beginning again, doesn't produce anything. 
It doesn't create or generate anything you could sell in a marketplace. It doesn't look like anything you can sort of boast to your friends about and sort of make some good sort of um, social media posts about you know what you've attained or achieved or pr- produced here. Just wouldn't do it, would it? And so there's something about that or this process and the way it may feel like a little bit like not much is happening or it's not going anywhere or it's not quite doing what I thought it was supposed to do. That's not accidental here. It's, it's not an accident that it plays out in this way. Is the sound still coming through all right? Good. This way it's not bouncing against my lip, which... I don't know if it was making any annoying noises, but it was sort of just distracting me before. So, what we notice when we come here, perhaps it starts to stand out to us, has what we're really interested in, in this situation, for all the different reasons we can come, in different ways we could describe it, at some level I think we're interested in some deepening well-being some deepening sense of inner peace, of a sense of being able to abide or rest or be at home in the truth of our experience and the way things are. And yet, when we come into a situation like this, often with some idea about meditation, what what it should do, how it should be, one of the things we really want is for our mind to be quiet. I don't know if any of you had a thought along that line at some point today. You know, it would actually be kind of nice if my mind wasn't thinking quite as much or quite as enthusiastically or quite as um, embarrassingly about all these things that I really wish it wasn't thinking about. Um, we don't often contemplate the very fact of mental activity, the way we experience it. But in a retreat situation like this, because when we practice meditation at home, of course for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, or maybe even 40 or 50 minutes, we can get the mind to be quiet and keep it quiet. But we can't do it for a whole day. We can't. And that's actually a good thing in a way. Because what it means is we start to see the nature of much of our mental activity. We perhaps start to reflect on and recognize and acknowledge that a lot of what's going on inside our minds is painful to us, is distressing, is exhausting, is frustrating. And it just goes on and on. If we don't attend to it, if we don't give consideration to what's going on here. So much of this we start to see we pay attention as we notice what's going on it's this urge this wish for things to be different than they are one way or another this is driving much of what goes on in our experience and even when things are kind of the way we want them to be that whole process gets involved with trying to keep them this way so we're constantly involved in some kind of struggle with what's happening wanting things to be different than they are are wanting to stop them from changing from the way they are, if that happens to be a way we wish them or like them to be. Do you recognize this? this is, you know, It might sound like someone's talking at the front about something that's got nothing to do with me, but I'm imagining that even just after a day, we have some sense of that going on for ourselves. And often, you know, kind of our idea about meditation that 
I think my mind is supposed to be calm and quiet because that's meditation, disguises an underlying desperate wish that that be so, that I do meditation and calm and quiet descends. Now, of course, sometimes it does, and how lovely, and not entirely accidental in this context. But that doesn't necessarily last for us as long as we would wish it. And the conditions that support it change. Something else arises. So one of the fundamental elements of what's here is an invitation to, just while we're in the process of engaging with this training of our attention, this developing of a capacity to connect, to steady, to gather the mind and direct it towards a particular experience, a chosen field of the totality, which we're mostly working with the, the body and the breathing in the body, the moving of the body. And yet we, we notice this, this sense of wanting things to conform, wanting things to fit in, wanting things to map out or, or match up with what my wishes are, what my expectations are. And how we kind of struggle when that's not the case. And I remember once, it's in uh, some ways kind of a mildly embarrassing, but uh, very, very you know, understandable in another way. Thing. Once when I was on a retreat, and I'd specifically gone to do this retreat in France in summer, because I was thinking it'll be sunny and warm in France in summer, and in England, unfortunately, it's not entirely a reliable condition, as I guess at least those of you who live in this country, which is many of us here, um, would know that can't assume it's going to be warm and sunny, even though it's summer. But in the south of France, well, gosh, of course it's going to be sunny. And actually, I was on retreat in a cabin in the, in the foothills of the Pyrenees, and it rained quite a lot that, that month. And I remember some point during the retreat, sta- finding myself standing outside, and I was kind of, I noticed my body was kind of upright, but it was really quite stiff, and I was kind of like a bit sort of kind of irritated and I realised that I was actually trying to get the rain to stop by going "Mm, don't stop no you're not supposed to be doing this sunny weather south of France I came here for this and he suddenly realised oh my gosh look at that look what's going on here this way in which we're fighting against something that our efforts to change are making no difference to it's very clear isn't it in a situation like that. And yet that's hard for us to really take it on, to really see that this is what's going on a lot of the time. There's a, there's a story I, I enjoy sharing that describes a encounter between an American naval ship and, um, and they're... they're and, and they're, they're, they get into a radio conversation with a, a Canadian um, radio operator off the coast of Newfoundland, as described. I think it took place quite some years ago, according to this. And it starts with a message from the American ship. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. So we can immediately have a situation that you can imagine, you know. Boat looks like it's heading towards another boat. It's worried. The Canadians respond, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Americans, this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, you divert your course. Canadians, no. I say again, you divert your course. 
And you can see there's a bit of a problem brewing here. So the Americans, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's 15 degrees north. Or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of the ship. Sounds a bit threatening, doesn't it? Canadians respond, This is a lighthouse. Your call. And there is something kind of delightful, isn't there? When we realise and we can maybe see ourselves in this, all of those demands and my importance and my sense of even, you know, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to somehow coerce. All of that in the face of, oh, it's a lighthouse. It's not moving. It can't. The only option here that makes any sense, of course, is the ship. Change course. And so one of the things we're invited to reflect on, to consider for ourselves, is the way in which we demand that life be other than as it is. Because it can't be other than as it is. Any more than the lighthouse can get out of the way of the ship. We have the capacity to respond to what's here. But so much of what's here is not something we can choose to make go away or be different than it is. That's not to say we can't profoundly influence and affect both what is here and how we experience it and what unfolds from this point. But as to what's arisen already, this we need to meet it as it is and not demand it be other than that as a precondition for the encounter. So with our minds, when we come to work with them, and we're working very much, we, we talk about mind, we're talking about the heart and the mind, the capacity that has this remarkable facility for being connected, for being attentive, for being sensitive, but that can also be distracted, reactive, and disconnected. And all of this we can call the realm of mind. What we see is that it's not in our control in the way we imagine and think it is. We say, it's my mind, it should do what I tell it to. But does it? If our mind was our mind in those terms and did what we told it to, we just say, okay, be quiet, be calm, feel good. And be attentive to the breathing, because that's what we're doing. And that's all that would happen. At the end of 40 minutes, we'd only report that. But that isn't what we notice. We might say, yes, let's be attentive. Let's be present. But so much else takes place. And our tendency is to fight that, to resist it, to try and put pressure on it, to somehow make it happen the way I think it should. And all of that pressure, simply, we experience that as distress, as pain, as contraction, as coercion. So it's useful to see what goes on in our mind, to see the way that so much of the time it's caught in patterns of reactivity, of a tendency to want something, to demand something, to be pulling for something to be happening or to keep happening, or to be resisting, rejecting or demanding 
something that happening to be stopping or going away and saying no, no. Craving and aversion. These are features of mental activity that we need to become familiar with. To not judge ourselves for them, because we all have them, but to start to become conscious of, to see this happens. Because if we don't attend to them, if we act them out, of course, then these basic underlying urges, these movements that move towards and want to keep hold of or move away from, want to push away, that have, as I, I think I mentioned this morning, they have a basic sort of functionality at a certain survival level. That we, we, we need that certain capacity. But if that dominates our existence, if that's all that's going on, we find it deeply unsatisfying and painful. And it actually gets us into all sorts of conditions and situations that we would rather not be in. And the, the movement of greed and of selfishness that comes from craving that's unattended to, of anger and hatred that arises from that aversion that's not attended to and cared for, we see how this is painful in our own lives and hearts and how it's harmful and destructive in the world. And we naturally, of course, want to learn to address this. We want to understand how to transform the power that this has and to bring forth something more wholesome for our own lives, something more beneficial for our world than these kinds of patternings. But learning to handle, this is a skill. This takes time. This is part of what we're engaged in here. And these forces are powerful. The habits and tendencies of our mind that have been allowed to play out, at times perhaps even encouraged over years and decades for many of us. They don't just stop because we see, oh, I think I'd rather that wasn't happening. And the first thing we need to do is actually just start to make space for it. Not trying to control those patterns and tendencies which come themselves out of an urge to try and control experience. But to actually step back and give it some space initially to say, oh, look, what's happening? There's a kind of a proverb from India that goes something along the lines of, how do you, sorry, how do you fence in a rogue bull elephant? And, of course, a rogue bull elephant is a rather large and powerful creature, and it can trample and destroy pretty much any fence you can build. And the answer, how do you fence in a rogue bull elephant, the answer is, you put it in a really large field. <coughs> so if there's enough space, it doesn't need to trample down the fences. Likewise with the energy and the patterning and the reactivity of our mind, often what we need to do is give it some space. Which doesn't mean we're just allowing the mind to run away with us all the time. But so far as it does, we just acknowledge that's what's happening. We don't try and squeeze it or grab it or control it and force it to pay attention to my breath now in some kind of sort of martial or sort of um, controlling way. It's like just, okay, here's where the mind goes. Let me gather it back in. Let me gather it back in. Let me bring it back in again and again and again. And it's a little bit like training a puppy. I don't know if you've ever had the sort of, I don't know if it would be called a fortune or a misfortune to be in the process of training a puppy, but certainly can have its delightful elements and its challenges. 
in the sense that you can't just tell a puppy to do what you want. It won't follow you. It won't know what you're talking about, to be honest. But you can guide and encourage it in such a way. And uh, a, a friend who I've been going walking on Dartmoor with a few times recently had in the last six months has has got a, a puppy who's now a you know a reasonable sized young dog. But very interesting the process of how the dog the puppy would run off into the moor and having to call him back and call him back and some of us you know, it was a bit concerning. But the practice was always when he comes back reward him. Give him a little treat, say, Well done. Not you shouldn't have run off, but oh well done that you've come back. And it's exactly like that for our minds. Not to get upset, not to shout at ourselves when our mind runs off, and it may do so a hundred thousand times, even in just one sitting. But actually just in the moment of noticing, oh, here I am, look what's happened. To honour that, oh, we're present again. It's something miraculous, in fact, if you think about it just a little. You know, when we're lost, when we're gone, when we don't know where we are, by definition, we don't know that we're lost. That's the nature of it. The moment we realize we're lost, oh my gosh, we're already present again. But you know what? We didn't do that. Just as we didn't decide to get lost, we don't decide, oh, I think I'm lost, I'll get unlost now, and suddenly here I am. No. It's like suddenly the light comes on. And oh, I'm here. And I might be aware that I just slipped off for half a moment, or I've been gone for half an hour or oh my gosh is it Sunday you know I've been gone for two days it happens you know we've all done that you know in a car arriving at a destination then suddenly arrives oh my gosh you know I was thinking about something the whole journey and I didn't even notice that I was making you know maneuvering a vehicle and that's a dangerous situation I mean at least on a cushion no one's going to really get into trouble if you miss a whole bunch of it you know, it just we begin again at the point we begin again. Here we are. And oh interesting, the light comes back on. The sense of presence, consciousness, awareness just re emerges out of the unconsciousness we were lost in. That's not unconnected from our intention to be present and our practicing and our cultivating this. But do you see how it's a little bit less direct than me kind of doing it? It's a little bit more remarkable, in fact, we could say, the way it happens. So something about actually honouring is, oh, okay, just like when the puppy comes back, you say, oh, well done. Honour ourselves when we're here for coming back, for reconnecting. It's much more useful. To see this as a process of learning, we can't. We can't just kind of make it happen by an act of will, but we can incline towards, cultivate and develop what supports something. And yet, learning by its very nature is something that indicates or requires the possibility of not getting it right every time. If there's no room for making mistakes, there won't be any learning. And that's one of the things about play I mentioned this morning, the sense of play. It's like, oh, we're allowed. We'd have to get it right when we're playing. Because we're learning. That's how it goes. There's a, there's a lovely story of a, uh, of a Zen practitioner, a student of quite a few years who 
has a very fortunate opportunity to meet the senior teacher from the tradition in which this practitioner is connected with. Zen, Zen Buddhist master who's known to be quite fierce. And so the, uh, he, he knows he'll just have a couple of minutes and can ask maybe two or three short questions and he's a little bit anxious when he goes into the meeting because this uh, Zen master, she's known to be quite fierce. And so, you know, he, he goes up and he bows down to her and he says, Master, Master, she looks at him. Mm. She's not smiling. He says, can you tell me, what's the most important thing to cultivate, to develop? She looks at him, she says, mm. discernment, good judgment. He says, oh, thank you, yes, 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 I understand. Uh, can you tell me, how do you develop discernment? How do you develop good judgment? She says, mm. Experience. Of course, of course, of course. Yes, I understand. Yeah. How do you get experience? Bad judgment. <laughs> Lack of discernment. Isn't it like that? The places where we don't yet understand lead us to act in ways that get us into trouble that are calling us to learn something here. And they keep getting us into that same kind of trouble until we learn whatever it is that we need to learn. That's how life works. And so it's really important that we forgive ourselves for the things that we mess up and we don't know how to do yet and we can't do or we find confusing, difficult or painful in the process. Because only by being willing to go into that territory can we actually learn what we don't yet know. If we stay within what we can do perfectly and easily, we won't grow, we won't learn, we won't develop. We could, and I shouldn't tell you this really, I admitted it in the small group, we could give you a meditation practice and technique that would be much easier and make you probably have a, a more pleasant experience more quickly, more reliably, because it's something you can already do. In the same way if you went into a gym and you wanted to do some workout, you know, they, you actually pick up some weights if you're doing weights or if you're doing stretches, whatever, you do something that's a little hard for you that takes you beyond what you can do. Because if you just get the weights, you can look up and do 30 times less and it's no trouble, great. You might feel good, but you won't have actually gained anything from it. If you're doing in a situation where you're stretching your body in a pose or a shape and you just stay within what's completely comfortable, without pushing, of course, but there's a way in which we notice, oh, there's a certain stretch that's required certain willingness to allow self to feel into where it's tighter. Not forcing, not pushing, but feeling into where it's tight. And that's not so easy, even when done skillfully. So this process of practice that we're engaged in requires an ongoing allowance for our not doing it perfectly as if there was such a thing. Not doing it according to our ideas of how we think it should be or how we'd wish it might be. And seeing, what do I learn here? What's possible to discover here? What can be developed here? Because at the same time as we develop this particular capacity to be present and awake, that very wakefulness itself starts to show, starts to reveal more and more of what's going on in our life, in our mind, in our body, in our world, and the ways in which we react or respond to that that are sometimes useful 
and other times not so helpful. So what we can understand is that a lot of the time we're kind of not as fully conscious of what's actually happening as we might imagine. Because of the way we get lost in the thinking processes of our minds and in the stories that they generate or that they reflect and reinforce, we don't have a space or a perspective from which we can reflect on what's taking place, which we can see, oh look, oh this is my mind getting caught up in this pattern of fear or in this whole sense of um, distress or in this sense of excitement or whatever it might be that's going on for me at any time. We tend to be lost in it and carried by it. And it's a kind of a blindness. It's a kind of a blindness that actually if one was to be frank with regard to this, I guess I would say it blights our lives. It blights our world. It's a kind of a blindness. It's not quite intentional, but it's not entirely accidental either. Because it's actually quite a lot of work to be awake, to be present. It seems like it's always more trouble to make the effort to pay attention in a given moment than to just be unconscious. But actually in our lives, it's much harder if we live them unconsciously. It's much harder to be constantly being carried away by the actions, by sort of patterns of behavior in the mind that then play out as patterns of speaking and patterns of behavior in the body. The, in a way, the unfreeness that we can observe in the patterned reactivity of our mind reflects and represents, when we identify with that activity in the mind, how we can find ourselves so bound, so unfree in our lives. And yet, of course, there's a, there's a natural caring, there's a natural wish in our hearts, appropriate and, and in fact quite beautiful, that this isn't what we wish for. We wish for freedom, we wish for peace, we wish for well-being. We wish for safety for ourselves and for others and for the needs of ourselves and others to be met, to be cared for. And yet, so far as we don't understand the mechanisms and the processes that are playing out, much of our endeavour to address those things we're concerned about doesn't seem to bring about the change we look for. And to a large extent, that's because it's coming out of a replication or a repetition of the same kinds of patterns. Coming from a place of craving for this or rejecting that, Meaningful transformation doesn't often happen from that. So, at one level, what's really important here is to acknowledge that the not being awake is a fundamental issue in our lives. Not just our life, in the life of our world. There's a degree of blindness. Sometimes it seems even willful. Sometimes we can even be enthusiastic about not really seeing what's going on because the implications for us might be challenging or uncomfortable. And yet, I think in the heart of our hearts, we are interested to see and to know. 
so long as we don't have to, as long as we understand we don't need to judge ourselves for the, the blindness that may have gone before. It's not our fault that, it be, that we find it in this condition. But as we start to become aware of it, it does become our responsibility. That's very different. Responsibility is in relationship to that which we are able to respond to. Responsibility. That which has already happened and there's nothing can be done about it, we don't have responsibility. There might be remorse or regret. That's understandable sometimes. Certainly I have done things that I feel sorry for, having done. Things I didn't do that I feel sorry I didn't do them. We all share in this, I imagine. But that doesn't mean that somehow that's a basis for judging oneself. So we, we have our limitations in our capacities, including our capacity to see what's happening and what's needed. But we have this responsibility with regard to what's here now, to where we find ourselves in this moment. And a primary response to the human condition that makes sense and that makes a difference from this perspective is to cultivate mindfulness, to cultivate awareness, presence, to be making the effort that it requires to be awake so far as we can in the very midst of our life, to see clearly. And this is very much the transformative process that we're invited to engage in here in the retreat. It's not a, a forcing or a willpower driven thing. It doesn't work that way. We can't coerce ourselves or our experience into fitting into what, it, what we imagine it should look like. But we can cultivate supportive conditions and wholesome qualities that allow things to begin to transform in line with what our aspiration might wish for. And some of the supportive conditions here for meditation practice, the relative simplicity, that there's not a lot of sort of entertainment provided, might at first seem a little austere and harsh and gosh, you know, is it a bit life negating? They don't have pictures, not many pictures on the walls and, you know, not a lot of uh, sort of entertaining patterns in the carpets and all of that sort of thing or wallpaper. And yet something about the simplicity we actually start to see, oh, that allows us to begin to tune into the more subtle levels of our experience, allows us to gather more in here, not looking outside for something that frankly, what's out there can't really give us. So there's, there's a certain support of conditions here, of the, the community, of having each other, practicing together. You know, it's such a blessing that we do this together. There are other people like ourselves, like yourself, who are interested to do this. Such a blessing. And teachings coming from wise beings who've come before us, who've shared them with us. Again, a blessing, a support here. And then this, there's these conditions we have, and then these, what's wholesome, what's supportive here, this, this cultivating. As we start to pay attention, as we make the effort to do so, non-coercively, but with commitment, with wholeheartedness, with a degree of dedication, 
what we notice over time, and I imagine this has probably happened for most, if not all of you, that sometimes, almost despite what's going on, it seems, we actually find, oh, I'm actually here. And it's actually, even if just a few moments or a few breaths or just one step, whereas, oh, I'm really here. And something stands out from that experience that's immediately recognizable to us and it's qualitative. It's not dependent on how long that experience went on for or how amazing the breath was that I was having at the time or whether that was a a particularly remarkably spiritual step I took because it wasn't any of those things. It was just that I was there for it. In that moment, that's all that was needed and the thereness, the qualitative shift that happens when we're there in that way is immediately apparent to us. It speaks to us of something we recognize, that we know, oh, yes, this is something I'm interested in. And yet at the same time, as, and this might just, as I said, might for some of us be just a few moments, or maybe I'm su- some are suddenly thinking, well, I'm not sure that happened for me. You know, maybe tomorrow, maybe it's not going to work. I don't know. Don't be too quick to form conclusions. It takes a while to find your way into this process. So I'm not setting that up as that's what's supposed to have happened by now. I'm saying it because I think it's quite often the case that for quite a few if not all of us that may be some of what happens but equally useful and important is the process of what we see when that's not happening and you're going to be in both of those camps most likely but you're certainly going to be in one if not the other because either we're able to be really present and there's something in that we get to discover or we're not and there's something there to discover too so it's a win-win situation in that sense What we see when we're not able to be present is basically my mind and my life. Everything that goes on here goes on in your life, I guarantee you. Everything you see your mind do here, it does in your life, but you don't necessarily get to see it that clearly. You don't necessarily get to feel what it's like that it does this, that it runs on and on and on and on, that it decides I will not accept and allow this thing and fights it. Or it demands that a certain thing come and happen and be here. It demands that I be a certain way or not be a certain way. Like I be a good meditator. It tells my body, you should feel comfortable now rather than uncomfortable. The body can't do much about how it feels. Certainly not in that situation. It just feels what it feels. It just is as it is. And seeing this, we see what pulls us, what pushes us. We might start to get a sense of some of our patterns. Oh my gosh, my mind is always going into the future. It just keeps going. Or for someone else, wow, it's really a lot about the past. Oh, okay. That's probably a lot of where your life is too. Or as, you know, people have reported, and the, you know, the sort of, oh my gosh, I've had this amazing insight. My mind is a jukebox. It's just playing music. And, you know, or it's a radio station and the DJ is out of control. <laughs> you know? And it's like that. It's just this music or this, it's a chat show, it's a talk show. It's, you know, it's like, oh my gosh. And it's just like, oh, 
oh wow, look, this is part of what's going on. We start to see ourselves and feel ourselves more clearly. And what's really important in this is that we be aware also of the tendency we have to assess ourselves, to evaluate ourselves, to judge ourselves, and all too often and tragically to condemn ourselves on the basis of things that are happening which we have no control over, because we've seen. And if this is in a way the, perhaps the first and most important insight in the path of insight meditation. It's like seeing, oh, this inner activity I'm not, in char- I'm not in control of it. I can't get it to do what I want it to. And our failure to succeed at that is actually a blessing in one sense. Because then we get to see, oh, maybe the point of this process isn't to control it. And the conclusions I derive from the fact that I can't control it, maybe I need to question them a little. We can so easily undermine ourselves or imagine ourselves to be the only person who's subject to what's happening here. In the small groups, one of the useful things that happens is that we hear from each other, as some of you did today and others of you, the rest of you will have the opportunity tomorrow. And one of the things people often observe is just how much of what other people speak of they can recognize in their own experience. What's happening here is a shared experience with various different elements to it for each of us, but much that is also common. And one of the things that happens so often is we're sitting and our mind is all over the place or the body is uncomfortable, and at some point the thought arises, I can't do it. It's no good. It doesn't work. It's hopeless. And in fact, someone might look up and see everyone else sitting calm and still. And start to think, and I've had these thoughts reported to me frequently. It's like, it's like looking around, and everyone else is so calm, so peaceful, like their practice must be really deep. And I can barely stay awake. And it's like, oh my gosh, there's like 50, they're like imminently about to be enlightened Buddhas, and one overcooked vegetable. <laughs> and it's like, and we just kind of, ah, oh, I just, it's everyone else can do that, and I can't. And of course, a moment later, the person just, oh, it's hopeless, I give up, and they're sitting there. And probably the person right next door to them looks over at them at that moment and goes, wow, they're really calm. They look really still. They seem very relaxed. You know, giving up and hopelessness will do that to us sometimes. At least we stop struggling. <laughs> but, of course, that way we take our experience and start to tell a story about ourselves based on it. When in another moment, of course, we might be feeling calm and present and suddenly, oh, actually it's working. It's okay, I can do this, it's good, I like it. Yeah, and before we know it, we're planning on signing up for another meditation course. You know, and maybe we're even thinking, gosh, I think I'll go to, go to the monastery and shave my head and put on the robes. And, you know, and, and this whole other story gets generated. And then we notice that that's a, a large story and we go back to, oh my gosh, I was spacing out again. At some point, we just step back and say, look, this is what's going on. And whatever we see happening, however it's playing out, we just pause, 
take a moment to breathe and feel what it's like right here and just begin again. And we're walking into the dining room, we notice ourselves becoming really interested in what's written on the tea bag labels. I don't know if you've examined them carefully. There's lots of useful information. But, you know, when we take away the normal things we entertain ourselves with, pretty bizarre things become entertaining, you know. It's like a good idea to check the notice board for notices because, you know, something might change. But every time I come past, do I have to read the schedule again? It says sitting, walking, sitting, walking, standing, lunch. And I read it again. And I imagine some of you read it again. And we know what it says. We could write it down. But it's like, give me some entertainment, please, because the bare experience of just meeting myself, my breath, my body, at some level doesn't quite feel fulfilling or stimulating enough, doesn't quite give me something I'm looking for. And yet, that process, that kind of hunger for comfort or the impatience we encounter, the boredom, the frustration, the kind of like, get me out of here. Has anyone had that one today? Get me out of here. It's like sitting there in the sitting, just waiting for the bell, waiting for the bell, waiting for the bell. Oh, it's going to be so good when the bell rings. The bell rings, boom, and suddenly, ah, ah, relaxed, great. But you know, the moment after the bell rings, it's not any different than the moment before. You haven't even moved your posture. But already it feels so much better because the bell rung. What happened? Nothing. The only thing that happened was we stopped trying to do something we thought we had to do because the bell hadn't rung yet. But we're still here. And of course we go walking. And it's walking and I'm so glad I can go walking. After 10 minutes... It's kind of strange. After 20 minutes, it's kind of boring. After 30 minutes, it's like, get me out of here. Can I please go and do some sitting meditation? That's the thing I was trying to escape, and now get me out of here. And I'm sitting again, and then I start thinking about lunch. And lunch is great for the first three mouthfuls. And then it's like a cup of tea. I want a cup of tea. How about a rest? I could go for a walk. The lunch is great, but I've stopped eating it. I'm thinking about what's happening next. Notice that momentum. Not to judge it. In a way, a kindly humorousness. Look at us. We do this. We can spend our life chasing the next thing forever. And we'll never get there. Because as soon as we, keep t- we tumble into the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the very way we've entered into it, if not examined carefully, conditions us to enter the next thing that way too. And the process of not actually finding any satisfaction, fulfillment and meaning in our life that actually satisfies us, that touches the depths of our heart, that meets that part of us that longs for something that has more profundity, more depth, more significance, more that speaks to the remarkableness of this existence and its preciousness. That we, at some sense, we intuit, we know, we have a sense of, but... We can't quite extract it from the things because we're coming at it the wrong way. We're demanding something from them they can't give us. It's just exhausting to live that way. And that's some of the exhaustion we find when we come on a retreat. And doing very little, we're nonetheless tired because it's like, whoa, the exhaustion of our lives, chasing, chasing, chasing seeing the tendencies continuing to play out requires some effort to just okay let me just see if I can meet what's here can I just turn towards what's here can I open to what's here 
Can I let myself experience this? Whatever it is. And then, okay, body, breathing, walking, standing, human being, right here, like this. Nothing spectacular or exciting or esoteric, just this, again and again. And as we do this, quite naturally that qualitative element starts to become more accessible because the quality, the sense of fulfillment, of meaning, of satisfaction that we look for from things doesn't come from the things but it comes more naturally and organically when we're fully conscious, present and inhabiting where we are with whatever has arisen, with whatever has come to us. And of course, we may need to make responses to those things. There may be things we do need to attend to, to address that are problematic in our patternings within ourselves, where we may be harsh or judgmental towards ourselves. We need to attend to them, but first from just making space and allowing them. Or, or a way we might notice something that, that we really want to cultivate that feels like, oh, there's just a, a need for some more kindliness or just a willingness to be patient here. Yeah, I want to develop that. Sure, but not judging ourselves for the absence of it. Just seeing, oh, this is needed here. Acknowledging that it's needed, being able to recognize that is the beginning of its development. We recognize it; it's needed because we know what it is already. The seeds are within us of what is possible for us. But they need space and they need the the warmth and the moisture of our attentiveness, of our presence, of our mindfulness, to be able to grow, to emerge. And just as seeds in a garden don't grow by being told to grow, they grow by the conditions of warmth and moisture and soil being made available, nutrition, bringing those then, and then still in their own time, in their own way, and according to their own nature, they start to sprout and come forth. So too, the seeds of wisdom and compassion that are within our hearts as human beings, we have them, all of us, for sure. And we can allow them to begin to emerge. We can support them and encourage them. very much a part of what we're engaged in here. Allowing ourselves to open into an intimate and honoring relationship, to honor it, to be intimate with our experience, to honor it, to trust that it has something to offer us, no matter what it might be, even those things we find uncomfortable, scary, challenging, painful. They have something to offer us. Equally as do the experiences which might be delightful or rich or beautiful or lovely. They are equally to be included fully, to be known directly, to be experienced wholeheartedly. But for what they are, not made into something, not taken somewhere else, to be significant beyond what's actually here. For now, just this is enough.
And as we start to see that, as we start to get that, we realize that the things of experience, the particularities that happen to us, around us, and in us, they are all of value. They all have their place. And there's a natural value in the very existence of our life that comes, that's revealed and that's supported through our willingness to meet it, to open to it, to learn from it, to be ultimately nourished by and awakened by our life. This is the possibility, this is the opportunity, this is the invitation of our practice here. And this this natural, this organic awakening of our life that comes as we sit, as we walk, as we stand, as we are, this brings with it challenges and gifts in many different ways. But we also find a natural sense of landing, a deepening, a kind of inhabiting of where we are that actually holds us and supports us in the journey. And this may not be how it always feels for us, but through the willingness to give space to what's here, to be interested in what we might learn from it, not by thinking or analyzing it, but by simply encountering it with as much openness, as much kindness, and as much willingness to learn that comes from a humility that we don't yet know all there is to know about this life, about this experience, about this body, this mind, this breath. There's more to learn here. And that that learning makes this a sacred journey, a blessed journey. So let's just sit quietly together for a few moments. So may we all settle ever deeper into our life and this moment. May our hearts open with kindness to include, to receive what is here. And our minds rest in calm and clarity to see what's happening to allow our lives to come into alignment with the way things are. 
for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings. So thank you for your practice here, for your presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.